Hello and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, the podcast where I sit down with conservationists, ecologists, wildlife filmmakers or anyone who really dedicates their lives to helping nature. I talk to them about their work in wildlife conservation, human and wildlife coexistence, community projects and worldwide environmental issues. So this is actually the final episode of season one. I'll be taking a month long break over November where I'll be getting settled into my new setup, recording new episodes and researching amazing new coffee companies. More details will be coming at the end of this episode and on Instagram over the coming days. So if you've been here before you'll know all about the coffee connection but if you don't please head over to our Instagram at Coffee with Conservationists and it's all explained in detail over there. So today I'm featuring Coaltown Coffee Roasters. This Welsh B Corporation is based in Ammonford in Carmarthenshire and after a brilliant Zoom call with them they kindly sent me a bag of their delicious black gold coffee. I'll be talking more about who they are and how you can support them at the end of this episode. In this episode I talk with James Mwenda, James is a photographer, safari guide, conservation speaker, and first and foremost, a ranger at Ol Pajeta Conservancy in Kenya. He is the caretaker of the last two living northern white rhinos on the entire planet. We talked about the responsibilities of taking care of such precious creatures, his experiences with human and wildlife conflict, and the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on game reserves and conservancies like Old Pajetta. Hi James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for giving your time to talk to me today. Um, oh, I usually start things off by kind of getting to know my guests a little bit better. Could you tell me about you and kind of your, your journey into conservation? My name is James Wenda. I work in Old Pajetta Conservancy. I've been working here for the last eight years. Um, my, my journey to conservation has been um, such a long one. It's, it's a dream that I had since I was seven years. I wanted to be a conservationist, and I knew exactly if I needed to do something to uh, for the environment, uh, which was um, ignited by the random uh, human-wildlife conflicts that we experienced in our village uh, when I was growing up. Uh, luckily, I was able to make my way through, and uh, until when I landed to Opezeta to do what uh, really excites me. That's great. Um, I'm I'm glad you mentioned human wildlife conflict. It's a it's an issue I've been wanting to address on the podcast from the beginning. Would you be able to explain a bit about what it is, uh, and if you want to, if if you're comfortable, talk about your own experiences. Yeah, um, human-wildlife conflict has been a persistent issue, especially in areas where we have um, wildlife, and especially it's it's propagated by encroachment of people to habitats, to animals' habitats, where it ends up having um, conflicts in, in that aspect where mostly maybe animals will harm people. On the other hand, people will harm the animals, and then it ends being a conflict, and um, it's it's something that has been, um, you know, getting much and much more, becoming much more and much more bigger problem as human population is increasing because we're taking up much more land 
that is meant for these animals. So at the end of the day, um, animals lose on most occasions because uh, we humans have other ways of trying to tame them and control them or eliminate them. And uh, it, it's been a persistent issue and one of the issues that um, affects conservation at large. Uh, personally, growing up, I, I, I am you know, convinced and I was, I was there to try and talk about elephants to my community. And to our community, elephants were ugly, uh, huge, destructive animals that came from the forest whenever they wanted and whenever the crops were ready and they would eat everything in the farm. And sometimes everything in the farm meant, um, you know, the reliance that these communities have for food and it's the only source of food. So um it's something they wouldn't comprehend that elephants are lovely animals and no matter how much you try to tell them they need to love and appreciate them and they couldn't because that is where their source of livelihood was derived elephants came and ate everything so it's something that remains to be uh controversial especially where we have communities that are more of uh, farmers because well and whether it's like big animals like elephants or zebras or warthogs, it, it, it solely depends upon a place and which particular animal. So human wildlife conflicts will vary from one point to the other, depending on what, uh, you know, maybe people or community or what activity or economic activity they embrace. And uh, moving forward, I think trying to solve some of these conflicts is one of the best solutions to conservation. Well, thank you. That was a great answer. As I said, I've been trying to kind of talk about that on the podcast since the beginning, but there's uh, been nobody who's really been able to have that first-hand experience um, to give a give an answer like that. Um, so the reason I kind of know who you are and about the incredible work you do at El Petager Conservancy is because of quite a famous image of you and Sudan um as a as a photographer i really kind of appreciate the power and emotion that was conveyed in that image um could you could you talk about sudan who he was and and why your connection to him was so strong um sudan was the last male known northern white rhino um was left on on the earth um i came to work with him uh since 20 that's when I, I came and met Sudan for the very first time. And upon coming to a Petita Conservancy, I was just hearing that there is the last two, I mean, there's the last seven Northern White Runners by then. Mm. And it's something that I initially wouldn't believe that such a charismatic, beautiful, uh, large animals could actually go, to, could actually be near extinct. I, I, something that I had a bit of doubt initially. Um, but when I was transferred to come and work with him uh, in 2014, I think that's when my eyes opened to the reality that this is true, this is happening, this is, this is you know, according to our facts, these are the last of their kind. And uh, in a person, you know, if I, you know, I couldn't take it as work initially, uh, so I went beyond thinking, you know, what is it that made these animals be the last? What are the what is the actions that led to these animals being the last of a kind? You know, I started asking myself questions that what led these rhinos. Um, 
2014, when I came, I was in the I was taking care of four rhinos, two males and two females. Uh, the females were Nadine and Fatu, and the males were Sunni and Sudan. And uh, in 2014, Sunni died, and I was the one of the first people that we saw him in the morning and reported that he was uh, he was dead. And um, there was only another male that was left. Uh, and then he died in the zoo, I think it's San Diego Zoo. And now we were left with only Sudan as the last surviving male northern white China. It is something that really hit me hard. It's, it's, it's something that is a very, you know, big emotional toll on me as a person, and as a, especially as a young person. And, um, you know, if you think about it realistically, uh, being able to watch extinction on an everyday basis is overwhelming. And the realization that Sudan was the last of its kind, it was actually another thing that um, really hit me hard. And so I had that connection. Not only was he the last of his kind, but he was the face of extinction. He represented what is really happening. He represented what is awaiting the one million more species that were, uh, be, were declared uh, near extinct or threatened with extinction last year. So it's something that had so much weight on me and something that has helped me to sort of try to convert that emotional toll into an energy that will help me speak about these animals and use them as a red light warning to what is happening to our environment and the climate chaos that we're seeing at hand. Yeah, um, thank you for talking about your experience. I mean, it's... From a perspective of someone, I'm I live in the UK, um, in England, and so many of my peers and my friends, obviously they all know about rhinos and that rhinos are endangered, but they don't really. A lot of them don't fully understand kind of how much. Um, you know, if I I said I was speaking to you this morning, and I said, uh, this man that I'm speaking to is the caretaker of the last two living northern white rhinos on that entire planet and they struggle to comprehend something like that um it's just they a lot of people don't realize how close extinction is for for so many creatures um yeah as you mentioned sudan has now unfortunately died um i believe there's still two northern white rhinos left alive both female is that right yeah, yeah, we have two females left now. Uh, the elder one is called Nadine, she's 31 years old, and the young one is called Fatu, she's 20 years old. And have you, um, I'm not sure if you're allowed to talk about the plans that you've got for them uh, publicly. You're doing something with egg collecting, is that right? Yeah, I think uh, well, Maybe to go back a little bit, one of the reasons why these rhinos came from the zoo was to see whether um, taking them to the zoo, taking them from the zoo back to Africa, which was their native homeland, would sort of uh, stimulate their sexual instincts and have them mate in a natural environment. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, that hasn't happened because um, for some reasons, you know, the tomb. Sunni died because of natural causes. Sudan died uh, at a very advanced age, and the two females are not reproductive in terms of being able to conceive and, and carry a pregnancy to term. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, after exhausting all the natural remedies of saving them, then scientists have been thinking 
of artificially reproductive techniques that would uh, try to save the northern white females from the brink of extinction. And so um, they have been working on in vitro fertilization uh, as, as, a, as a way of saving northern white females where they have succeeded collecting eggs uh, three times, actually. Uh, in August and December last year, they were able to collect um, uh, they were able to collect uh, 19 eggs in total and successfully created uh, three viable embryos that are waiting to be transferred into a southern surrogate mom that is going to carry that pregnancy to term as a surrogate mother. Um, so uh, the other pickup they did last month wasn't successful because they were they weren't able to you know um, create any embryos out of that. But however. The in vitro fertilization seems to be a possible remedy to save the northern white from the from the brink of extinction and sort of giving us a hope that we won't be the last people to have taken care of the northern white rhinos. Mm, that's brilliant. Um, yeah, it looks like it's uh, some quite hopeful work in the in progress. Um, obviously, moving on to something a bit more positive, you're a, a major part of the team at Old Pajita, Um and you are involved with the volunteer programs there. Um, in today's world with COVID-19, volunteering internationally and ecotourism is kind of a you know massively restricted. International travel has been very much restricted. Um, what do you think the future of conservation tourism and uh, volunteering will look will look like? Um, I mean, to be honest, George, I think that's where. Uh... We are all worried. I mean, that's all what we are worried about because, you know, uh, tourism overall plays a very crucial role in making sure that uh, the much-needed funds uh, for the protection of these ecosystems where these animals live is, is always available. And the fact that uh, people cannot travel, uh, people cannot volunteer, uh, it's, it's, it's a worrying trend bearing in mind in cases like Opegeta Conservancy, where I work, um, we rely on tourism and other complementary tourism activities um, to, to generate 80% of our operations costs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with what is now happening because of the COVID-19 pandemic, we are at a very, very serious um, conflict uh, or, a, or a big jeopardy to the work that we've been doing for so many years to have Opegeta Conservancy as a, as the largest black rhino sanctuary in Eastern Central Africa and the only uh, sanctuary for great apes in, in Kenya, as well as over 100 species of animals that call Opegeta home. The future we hope for is that this pandemic will be over and um, travel bans will be lifted and people can be able to travel back again and, and and it's time now people realize how fundamental their vacation, their volunteer, um, you know, experiences that they seek, and and whatever they buy during their travels is really crucial for conservation. Uh, tourism has over three hundred thousand people that depend on it in Kenya. So mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. imagine also the chain goes down to the suppliers, the jobs, and everything else. So it's. It's really worrying, and we hope that this virus ends over and people can be able to travel. Otherwise, if not, then it means um, 
conservation areas or like pastoral conservancy will have no option but to even reduce the the, 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 the the people that work here as a way of cutting down the cost which at the end of the day compromises the well-being of these animals so it's really really a risky time especially for conservation if this virus will persist it will be with us here for a bit of a long time mm, yeah it sounds i mean i, I was talking uh, a while ago a couple of weeks ago to someone and we were both talking about the effects on boots on the ground conservation you know the work you do in your conservancy and, and all around the the world um you're the people who are most affected and thinking about that number 80 percent that's that's a huge amount that's a lot bigger than i i, th- I would have thought um so it yeah it does does seem worrying but um hopefully everything can will, will come back to kind of normal soon i'm not i'm not sure kind of um when we're when we're gonna be able to travel again normally um yeah it's it's a, a lot of uncertainties at the minute yeah yeah um so obviously unfortunately we we can't really talk about rhinos without talking about the trade in their horn um many of my listeners will know that rhino horn is in reality worthless it's made out of the same stuff as our fingernails uh but having said that it can fetch absolutely astonishing prices on the black market um as a, as a long-term ranger as someone on the on the front lines of, of the fight against organized poaching against these rhinos what what in your opinion is the best method to keep rhinos safe from the illegal wildlife trade um that's always uh remains a very diverse question because i think it is uh it is you know i think there's this perception that people think that maybe poaching and uh, killing of rhinos is all about the poverty that's around the community but i've uh, I have a conviction it has it has much more to do with money and wealth and power than it has to do with poverty, you know. Mm. Because if you find the end results of um, the you know, the final market for the rhino horn, I mean a kilo sells for more than sixty to sixty five thousand US dollars. Wow. And that's a lot wow. of money. So yeah. uh when money has been put to a place, people will always gear to achieve that, that money. We all know that. So uh, I, I believe, in my opinion, and having been on the front line, that the biggest way to help stop this is to make sure that uh, we safeguard the rhinos in their natural ecosystems. You know, We just make sure that we don't lose a single rhino to poaching. We make sure that we employ all avenues possible. We explore any possibilities of making sure that we don't lose a single rhino to poaching. If that happens, then it's able to turn the tide on the other side of the market. Because as long as we're losing rhinos and we know the end results where people believe that it's a cure for cancer, it's a cure for uh, conversion, it's a cure for fever. I mean, George, you can pay anything for you to, to heal from cancer if you're if you're sick of, of it. I mean, and the people that believe it uh, have been passed this tradition for over thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. And we all know the integral role that traditions play in us. So uh, convincing that somebody who is dying of cancer, maybe in the Far East or in the Middle East, 
it's it's a hard thing because it's something that they are willing to pay anything to achieve because they believe it can cure them. So you're talking about eradicating some of the traditions that have dated years and years. And it's possible. We've seen that happening for sure. We, it's, it's, a possible, it's a possibility to uh, eradicate these traditions. But the easiest way is by the time maybe we eradicate it, we will have rhinos almost to extinction. We will be talking maybe of two rhinos like we are with the northern rhinos and using millions of US dollars to resuscitate them. So what I believe most is uh, we need people on the ground, like what we do. We need people to protect these rhinos, monitor them on an everyday basis, um, make sure they are free from poachers. We need resources, you know, to, to make sure that we protect them. We, 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 we make sure that they are safe. For the last two years in Opejeta, we have not lost a single rhino to poaching. If that would happen for the next 10 years, in every conservation areas that we have world rhinos, then it would be a good sign to send on the other side of the market that you are not getting our horns. We, we are protecting them. And by doing that, we will be giving them a chance to reproduce uh, and increase in number and, and, and sort of uh, live in, in, in safe and comfortable lives. So for me, I believe protecting the rhinos on the ground, making sure they are safe is much more easier than trying to fight the market and the farm in the Middle East or wherever the market is because there is other parts of the world that the rhino horn has been used. It is far much more easier to sort of say like the 90,000 acres of Opejita Conservancy where we have over 130 black rhinos and over 30 southern white rhinos. If that perimeter fence has been secured and we don't lose the rhino to poaching, then that's, we have won the battle. So that's, that's what I believe, and that's what remains my motivation every day, to commit to protecting rhinos in their utmost natural environment. Mm, thank you. That's a, that's a great answer, because I think I've really um, I've been learning a lot recently about the illegal wildlife trade and the, the complexities of it um, in terms of poaching from a community level versus, um, you know, organised kind of um organized crime groups really and that the whole trade um so thank you for giving me your opinion this kind of next question leads on to that a bit but um i'm about to start a degree in wildlife photography um i know many of the students on the course myself included have a have an interest in working with endangered species and uh sort of you know frontline conservation in the future one of my course mates wanted me to ask you this question, but as students, what can we do to help in in conservation efforts in places like Old Petitia, uh, especially if we don't have you know a, a massive platform to share issues? Um, I think uh, that's a very brilliant question, uh, George, and I think uh, it remains one of the greatest questions we need to ask ourselves as young people. You know, mm. the hard truth is that the, the environment, the way we see it, is is if we don't do anything about it, that is the environment we'll be struggling to uh, sort of fix in the years to come when we have aged, when our children are younger, that aspect. So it remains that we need to do anything possible, young people to do anything possible to make sure that we create a good environment, not only for us, but for our 
the future inhabitants of this planet, and not only about the people, but for other living beings that are very integral parts for the ecosystem to be uh, complete and, and and the benefits that we reap from it to continue. Yeah, so I think to wrap it off, I think I would say that um, we as a young people need to step up in whatever aspects that um, we can be able to you know, uh, improve the well-being of our planet. And it's, it's very broad. But some of the, you know, the basic ones that I've said, you know, um, people can volunteer, people can donate, and the young people will complain they don't have resources, but um, they can be engaged in activities that can help raise enough money, even than those people who have it. I have seen, you know, young people bake cakes, sell cakes. I've seen them do marathons and run. I've seen them um, join in clubs and in schools and say that they are sacrificing maybe one of their meal for for for, for three months. And there's, there's so many young people have been able to do. So it's it's not only about the, the giving; it's about also ourselves giving to the environment to be used. Maybe volunteering in our local places that we know. Maybe it's 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 it's, it's anything. We just need to explore what we can do best and what we have time for and what even excites us doing as we are becoming better citizens of the planet, but also revisiting some of the actions that are causing problems to our environment. Mm, well, that's uh, I know that a lot of my fellow students will really appreciate that answer because then... They're at a, often at a loss what to do, and that is, you know, you've given so many options of, of what we can do to help. Um, before we finish off, we're going to do a little quick fire round. This is something I do with all my guests at the end of an episode. It's kind of just four quick questions, if that's okay. Um, so first off, what's your favourite animal? Of course, that goes the rhino. Because out of the two northern white rhinos, the youngest one is my girlfriend. <laughs> so, so rhinos be, remain to be my uh, favourite animals. Uh, what's a place you'd like to go and connect with nature? Somewhere you feel really at home? I'm so much in love in Botswana, which is, I think, they have uh, very vast lands and... Uh, it's, I think it's a beautiful country as well. I've traveled a bit of Kenya, but I always like to be in nature where uh, I can connect with it. But I, my next dream place, and especially in Africa, would be Botswana. Do you have a conservation hero? Definitely, yes. Uh, I have, of course, I've been following David Attebro for a long time. Uh, and he's, he's sort of inspired my love to speak out for, for nature, to speak up for the environment. Um, you know, but from a local perspective, uh, I haven't had someone actually who I look up to and say that this is a person um, that you know like speaks about from a, you know an African perspective. That is, so it's something that looking forward because you then at the end of the day you find that um, in, in the local villages in our community, the people who can't afford a TV to watch the BBC series about uh, David Attenborough lose that touch they don't have someone from a local perspective who they look and say that i would want to be someone like this so it's something that um i have been seeking inspiration with to sort of emerge in in a, in a kenyan perspective per, per se 
where young people can look up at you and say that I would want to be a conservationist because in Kenya, it's not like a, you know, not young many young people you can go in a class and tell them to raise up their hands and say they want to be a ranger and live in the bush protecting animals. So he has really inspired me, David Attenborough, to be the voice. Um, but I'm looking forward to represent in the most local perspective where you can stand and tell young people that this is something that we need to do. Just to finish off, how do you take your coffee? Oh, yeah. You know, we grow we grow coffee in our place. And uh, our coffee is very raw. Like, we don't, we don't have... Like, we have that that is taken to the factories commercially. But we do it, like, locally in our, in our, in our homes. So you roast it. Um, and then, you know, you cook, you grind it. And then you directly take it to you know to you cook it and drink it so it's 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 how like i like it to me i like it when it's you know just plain you know like milk and just with you know a bit of sugar and uh yeah uh well finally i'd like to ask where can people find you kind of what are your social media handles and uh you know online platforms so people can uh find me on social media um that is on uh, Instagram as Jemu Mwenda, which is J-E-M-U-M-W-E-N-D-A. And they also can find me on Facebook as James Mwenda in LinkedIn, in Twitter, the same name. Um, they, they can be able to find me there. Also, if on the, the Google search, if just search James Mwenda, they can be able to see Fantastic. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been a, a privilege to talk to you and an honour to hear your experiences, especially linking with uh, with Sudan. Hopefully one day I'll be able to visit um, Al Pejiza myself. But until then, stay safe and I, I look forward to seeing the brilliant work you do next. Thank you so much. We really appreciate for thinking about us as well. And uh, maybe it's good to finally say that uh, people that are willing to support us can visit Opejita Conservancy um, and see the work that we're doing there. Every day we are doing sofa safaris. That is like live session of safaris within the conservancy. And also those that want to maybe donate or support us, they can see the emergency appeal on, on our website. As well as thank you for what you're doing, George. I mean, using this platform, being a sort of a digital conservationist is really one of the greatest things that needs to be done in these digital times. So thank you so much for what you're doing as well. Thanks again so much to James for taking the time to speak to me today. All the links to his social media will be in the description down below. So I said that today we are featuring Coal Town Coffee Roasters. After a lovely call with them where I explained what the podcast was all about, they very kindly sent me a bag of their black gold coffee. This coffee is really delicious with the notes of nutty milk chocolate and biscuit coming through beautifully. Coltown are a B Corp, which as you know if you've listened before, is a brilliant independent certification that holds businesses to account on ethics and sustainability. Coltown are certainly covered on that front and I'll definitely be supporting them into the future. All the details of the particular coffee I'll be drinking will, as ever, be over on our Instagram, Coffee with Conservationists, and in the description down below. I'll also be producing some bonus content quite soon about what a B Corp is and why I always love finding out 
the coffee company that I intend to support is a certified B Corporation. So as I said at the beginning of today's episode, I will be wrapping up season one with this one. I've absolutely loved recording this podcast, but I needed a bit of a break to come back stronger than ever. I'll be refining my audio setup and editing skills, recording new episodes with some amazing guests, and as ever, researching new coffee to feature on here. So there won't be any new episodes across November, but I'm planning to have everything back up and running by the 5th of December. In the meantime, I'll still be producing content over on my Instagram and on my Ko-fi page. This is something I've started as a way to receive small one-off donations to support contributors to the podcast, as well as buying new ethical coffee. Me buying coffee as opposed to companies sending me uh, samples or bags supports the companies themselves and the amazing projects they are involved with. You can find my Kofi page through the link on my Instagram bio, and if you feel you've learnt anything of value from my podcast, it would really mean the world to me if you consider making a small donation to enable me to keep producing new content regularly into the future. Coffee with Conservationists is now available on Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts, and a few more places. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, thanks so much for tuning in and being such an integral part of making this podcast a reality. As ever, I've been your host, George Steedman-Jones, and this is the Coffee with Conservationists podcast. <laughs>